Hey friends, you are listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. To learn more about Grace Story and how you can get plugged into our community, visit gracestory.church. The sermon text for today is from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner that is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would settle our spirits this afternoon and clear our hearts and minds from all distraction. I pray that you would guide Ryan's words and that your Holy Spirit would help open our souls to what you would have each of us learn. Amen. That's Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5 verses 12 through 15. Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 through 15. So my grandpa wasn't a real talkative dude, but near the end of his life, I think he was probably 90 or 91 when he told me the story. He wanted to tell me about his first job. And so he got a job at the farm next door to his home. And he went over and he just asked the farmer for whatever work he could have. And he was given a job cleaning out horse stalls. And the pay, he remembered, was... 50 cents a day and you bring your own dinner with you and that's kind of the gig. So he worked there for a little while and being the enterprising man that he was, he eventually decided to go to the next farm over and ask them for a job. And he went over, introduced himself and he was offered a job and then he asked, well, what's the pay? And the farmer said, a dollar a day and your dinner. And my grandpa took that job in a heartbeat and that phrase has stuck in my head ever since a dollar a day and your dinner. It's almost poetic, isn't it? A dollar a day and your dinner. And for that generation, the ability to provide for oneself, the ability to put food on the table, even as a young kid, he was no older than probably 10 or 11 at the time, the ability to make a little bit of money was in and of itself, enough to lend meaning to work, right? Just the fact that the job provided was the meaning that the work needed in order for it to be worthy, in order for it to be a good use of time, in order for it to be fulfilling. It was actually fulfilling 
to provide for one's family or to provide for oneself. But if we roll the clock forward now some 70 years, I guess, the, the requisites for a job to be deemed meaningful are different, aren't they? A, a job is not considered meaningful. For most people, in the, at least, I'll say Gen X on down, right? A job is not considered meaningful unless it also is fulfilling in some other ways. It's not meaningful only because it provides for your family. It's not meaningful only because it puts food on the table. It's not meaningful only because it allows you to provide and have financial security, but it also needs to do some other things like make you feel like you are using your gifts, for example, or making you feel like you're contributing to the general good or making you feel like you're following some type of calling, or you can kind of pick up on the phrase that's common to all of these things. What's the phrase that's common to all of these things? Make you feel like, right? Really, in the end, that's what lends meaning to work in the minds of a lot of, a lot of people. And even now, you know, there's two different ways that we can err as we think about work, right? And, and I just kind of categorize these roughly, the first way we can err is by taking up this notion that work is meaning. Work is meaning. In other words, in other words, meaning minus work equals zero. <laughs> Are you with me? That kind of thing. So the work becomes the means by which you establish all of your significance, the means by which you establish all of your own meaning in your life it becomes the thing and when you take it away life is just a vacuum many people don't even discover that they hold this worldview until they retire or until they find themselves without work and then all of a sudden they also find themselves without meaning and it's an awakening it's a moment of realization it's kind of a fulcrum point for them in their lives where now all of a sudden they see things differently they realize that the way that they've prioritized work has at least proven to be unhealthy in this very moment when they don't have any. You with me? So it's possible for us to err in that way, to think that work equals meaning. It's, it's the thing. But the other way that we can err is that we can begin to believe that work is meaningless. And we can begin to believe that work has no intrinsic value. That the only way work can be meaningful is as a means to some other end. That the only way work can be meaningful is if it checks off some other items on a list that actually are meaningful. Do you see that? So work itself can't be meaningful. But if it allows us to do X, Y, Z, then it becomes meaningful only because X, Y, Z are attached to it. And both of these, as far as the Bible is concerned, are wrong. Both of these fall short of the biblical vision of what work is and what work is for. In the Bible, work is an expression of our humanity. Work is an expression of our humanity. It's the earliest, it's the earliest commands. It's among the earliest commands that God gives to humanity. What does he tell humans to do from the very beginning? What is it? Well, he tells them to, number one, be fruitful and multiply, right? Fill the earth and subdue it. Our church is pretty good at that, being fruitful and multiplying for the most part. We've got that one <coughs> pretty much covered. But God also tells us who we are. 
When he tells us who we are, he lets us know that we're his likeness, which means we're his children, but we're also his image, which means that we're his representatives. We're the ones who do the work of God on God's behalf in God's world. We're the ones who do the work of caring for creation, keeping creation, loving creation, all that God has made. That doesn't just mean trees and flowers. It also means buildings and civilizations, right? It means doing the work of caring for, ordering, bringing beauty and excellence to everything God has made. And if you look around, we have to remind ourselves of this sometimes. Sometimes we think that only if we're out in the grass and the woods are we in God's creation, right? But every single thing we've ever seen has been made out of God's creation, right? You can't get outside of it. You can't, you can't slip out of nature, right? You're always in nature because you're always inside the thing that God has made. And God has asked us to bring beauty, order, and excellence to all of that, to order everything, everything that he's put on the earth. That takes work right so work according to scripture is intrinsically meaningful it's attached to our humanity and only through work only through work do we find this the fullest the fullest expression of this idea of being God's representatives that takes some kind of work doesn't it and although those who can't work at all, whether that's even mentally or especially physically, still enjoy their full humanity, they also experience that inability as a loss, don't they? They experience it as something that they wish they could have. They experience it as something that they long for because it, it allows a fullness of our expression of our humanity. So we don't want to say work is meaning. But we also don't want to say that work is meaningless. And that's when we get to this passage. Really, I think we'll be a little bit surprised to see how this passage is actually ordered. Because if I were to ask you to just tell me the Ten Commandments, most of us would kind of gloss this one with something like keep the Sabbath or rest one day a week or honor the Sabbath or observe the Sabbath. And that would kind of be the end of it, right? That would be kind of the way that we talk about it. But I want us to see that it's a little bit different in the way that it's structured. And I think that that carries some instruction for us. So let's just read this one more time and then we'll get to work. Get it? Get to work. Trying to figure out exactly what God has for us in the passage. So verse 12, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So the first thing I want us to see is that work is a gift. Work is a gift. Look at how this passage is structured. At the beginning, this is really weird because all of the rest of the Ten Commandments, all of them except for one, are going to be in this form, you shall or you shall not, right? You shall or you shall not. It's eight of them that come that way. You shall or you shall not. And all of those times, that's an imperfect verb. That doesn't mean anything to you, but just kind of note that in your mind. That's an imperfect verb. That's a finite verb. It's a real verb, just like we would use in English, a real verb. Not a helping verb, not a, any of the other kinds of things, but a real verb, right? All of them are like that. Well, there's one that's an actual imperative. That's a command, right? And that's verse 16, honor your father and mother. That's the only actual command in the entire Ten Commandments. Anybody know that before? It's the only actual command in the entire Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. And then this one, observe the Sabbath day. It begins with an infinitive. It's the only command in the entire Ten Commandments that begins with an infinitive. And the first time we see a finite verb, this is what's crazy to me, is it's not observe the Sabbath, it's six days you shall labor. There's where we see the form that comes in all the rest of the Ten Commandments. You shall or you shall not. Six days, so the first, the first place we see something that follows the format of all the rest of the commands, it doesn't say rest, it says work. <laughs> Are you with me? Now, Here's the deal, don't get me wrong, work was the standard. Anywhere you looked in the ancient Near East, everywhere you turned your eyes, you're going to see people working. It doesn't matter when it is, what day of the week, they're working. Constant work, ceaseless labor. So there's no, there's no real distinction here if we just see this as a command to work. But I think it's significant that the assumption, the assumption is that these people would be working just like all the nations around them because that's something that marks them as human beings, right? Six days you shall work. Now look, we live in a culture where all of us are trying to figure out a way to not work, aren't we? And maybe we can get AI to keep us from working. Maybe we can learn some code that can do our job for us, right? There's all kinds of ways that we can skip out on work, all the while, Scripture is assuming that we're going to work. What are we going to do if we don't work? Well, we're probably going to slip outside the at least uh, implicit assumption of this commandment, right? That, that we're going to actually give ourselves to a worthy cause. We're going to spend ourselves for something important. Now listen, that doesn't mean that it doesn't say six days you shall clock in at your job, right? It doesn't say six days you shall keep a regular employment. But it says six days you shall work and labor and do all your work. Because the understanding is that work is a gift. And I think we can say also work is good. Work is good. We covered this. It's part of being God's image that we're going to work. We're going to have meaningful employment. We're going to do things that bring beauty, order, and excellence to the world. And here's the next thing. Work is gaseous. What do I mean by that? 
Well, solid liquid gas, right? Solid liquid gas. Solids have their own size and shape, right? They take their own size and shape. Liquids have their own size, their own volume, but they take the shape of their container, right? Liquids take the shape of their container. Gases, what do they do? They take both the shape and the size of their container, right? Work is that way. Work will take the shape and the size of the container that you put it in. It will fill up all the time, all the space that you allot to it. All work swells to fill up the amount of time that you allow it to fill up. That's just the way work works. And it also collapses to fit inside of the time you allow it to fit inside of. Now, don't get me wrong, it can be done poorly if we collapse it too much, but it operates like a gas and it's going to fill up the amount of space that we give it. And that's the assumption here that we actually have a choice about how much time we allow work to fill up. We have a choice about how much of our life we allow to be filled up with work. We get to choose the size of the container for work. And what the, what the <coughs> command seems to tell us is that it's our responsibility not to allow it to fill up all seven days, but rather it's to fill up six. And one day is supposed to be allotted to something else. So work is a gift. It's good. It's gaseous. And the last thing about work, meaning is a choice. Meaning is a choice. In other words, how we respond, how we respond to the work that God places in our lives, because it is God who's placed the work in our lives, and the work within God has placed us, is up to us. We can choose to find meaning in our work or we can choose not to find meaning in our work. This morning I made pancakes for the kids and Filder got jelly on his pancakes and then we were out of jelly, right? And then Farmer went to get the syrup out of the fridge but the syrup was empty. So Isla got one jelly pancake because there was a time, I scraped just enough jelly out of the bottom of the jar. She got one jelly pancake, and then I put honey on her other pancake. Well, Farmer doesn't like honey on his pancakes, so I whipped out the chocolate syrup, and I put a little bit of chocolate syrup on Farmer's pancakes. All of a sudden, Isla declares, I don't like honey on my pancakes. <laughs> Why? Because now there's chocolate available, right? She's choosing like, like she knows, she knows that she likes honey on her pancakes. She was going to eat it happily until she saw the chocolate was a choice. The same thing happens with our work, right? We get to choose whether our work is meaningful. If you want your work to seem meaningless, just compare it to other work. In other words, if you want to ruin anything, just compare it to something else like it. If you want to ruin your marriage, compare it to another marriage. If you want to ruin your perspective on your kids, compare them to other kids. If you want to ruin your pancakes, compare them to somebody else's pancakes. If you want to ruin your work, compare it to other work, right? But we can choose to find a meaning in our work because we can choose to take the perspective of the Bible that work is a gift, that it's part of our humanity. It's the way that we express our humanity. By bringing beauty, order, and excellence 
to the world. And if anybody can point to me any piece of work that doesn't do one of those things, then you don't have to try to find meaning in it anymore. I'll let you off the hook. Okay. But in Genesis, what we see is God bringing beauty, order, and excellence into the world, right? And our work is an imitation of that as his image. So meaning is a choice. Work. The next thing this text does absolutely want us to do, not just work, but rest, right? Rest. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. So rest, this is radical rest, isn't it? And it's the kind of rest, look, you're not allowed to cheat, right? You can't be resting but then have your AI working, right? You can't be resting but you've got someone out getting things done for you. The idea is that you don't worry about getting things done, right? You, you can't have your livestock out getting stuff done for you. They're going to rest too. Everything has to rest. On the Sabbath, because it's the day that you don't worry about getting things done. It's amazing to me that the livestock are mentioned, right? That's why, that's why I draw the connection to the AI, because that, that tells me that the point here is not just, it's not just that you cease, but it's that you stop worrying about production, you stop doing things to provide for yourself. It reminds us of the manna in the wilderness, that the people were to not worry about it, right? Stop worrying about it. For one day, let yourself trust that God can handle it. One day, and don't send a substitute out to work on your behalf, but just rest. Why? Why? Why rest? Well, in this text, we see at least a couple of reasons. Number one, rest encourages order. Rest encourages order. Six days you shall work. One day you shall rest. In other words, this rest is creating a pattern. It, it's establishing a pattern. It's establishing order in your life. And it's establishing counter-cultural order. That was the case thousands of years ago when this was written. When everywhere you looked, work could be being done day after day after day after day. Ceaseless, endless work. But the people of Israel went counter to that by resting for a day. It was weird to rest for a day. And it's weird now. It's weird now to establish this rhythm. But it brings order. It's like our liturgy, right? We have these patterns every single week where we do this, then we do that. We do that, then we do this. What does that do? It brings order to our service. It brings order to our hearts. 
It primes us emotionally and spiritually to respond at certain times in certain ways. And through the Sabbath, God does that with the week as well, right? So it encourages order. Not just that, though. Here in this text, we also see that rest honors the weary. It honors the weary. What does it say? You're resting so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You're resting for the sake of others' rest. You're resting so that they can be refreshed. It's not just about you. It's not just about you checking off your spiritual to-do list. But it's about the real good of other human beings who also need rest and whose rest is interrupted, disrupted by your ceaseless labor, right? So stop working so much so that other people can rest. A lot of leaders get this mixed up in their heads like they think that if they shoulder the burden and work, 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 70, 80 hour weeks, they're, they're removing work from other people, but they're really just establishing a pattern of excess that everybody below them is now going to suffer because of. Right? You're, not, you're not taking bullets as an executive who doesn't know how to order your life. You're actually creating a pattern that ruins the lives of everyone who watches you. So we have to rest, not just for our own sake, not just so that we can be refreshed, but so that other people who exist within our patterns can also rest and be refreshed. Man, this can happen in the home. We can, we can labor ceaselessly, and we think that we're rescuing those around us from disorder, but really what we're doing is we're catching them up in the destructive flood of our ceaseless activity when our rest would create space for them to flourish. It would give them the weary space to be refreshed. So rest honors the weary. But if we turn to Exodus, what we're going to find is in this same command, we're going to see that the command to rest is actually attached to God's rest in creation. His rest from all his work on the seventh day of creation. So rest not only encourages order, not only honors the weary, but it also emulates God. We can emulate God through our rest. So work, rest, and then remember Remember, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You know, it's amazing to me if you think about it, the Exodus 10 commandments remember the most recent saving act of God in creation for the Sabbath. And now the Deuteronomy version of the Ten Commandments also remember the most recent saving act of God, that of the Exodus, right? And in both cases, the command to 
honor the Sabbath is attached to that most recent big event in God's salvation history. Creation and now the Exodus where God rescues the people out of Israel. And here we're told that we're to remember, commanded to remember. And what is it that we're remembering? We're remembering who we were without the saving work of God. We were strangers. In other words, we were distant from God. For the people of Israel, this meant that they lived in a strange land. They weren't in the promised land. They lived far from the land of promise. They were far by miles disconnected from the land of the patriarchs, the place where they had been promised to receive an inheritance. For us, we lived our lives far from God, didn't we, in our sin. We served ourselves. We were heedless of God's commands. We're strangers. Not only that, we're slaves. Slaves to what? Well, slaves to our sin. Slaves to the patterns of the world. Have you ever come awake to a, a pattern of the world that you'd never seen before, you'd never noticed, and then you realize how it's dictated your life? Man, work is a huge way that this happens. It becomes, it becomes an inviolable principle in our lives. That work just absolutely has to happen in a certain way. So we're slaves to the patterns of the world. We're slaves to our sin. We're slaves to our selfish desires. But we've been rescued. And that's the last thing I want us to remember here. And it's the last thing we're commanded to remember. That we are rescued. The Lord your God brought you out of slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And he did the same for us. He brought us out of our sin with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Mighty enough to raise Jesus from the grave. He has rescued us. And then we need to rejoice. I want to read Hebrews 4 3. Hebrews 4 3. Therefore, I'm going to start in verse 1. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. You see this word rest. The, the author of Hebrews is thinking about Genesis chapter 1. I'm sure he's thinking about the Ten Commandments. For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Here we go. Look at verse 3. He's talking about the rest that's commanded in the Ten Commandments. The rest that were shown in God himself in the first chapter of Genesis. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I have sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. What's, what's the author of Hebrews saying here? 
He's saying to us that although we can aspire to rest by obeying this command, although we can aspire to rest by emulating our creator, although we can aspire to rest by building our lives around this pattern that scripture sets forth, we're never, we're, no amount of effort, no amount of obedience, no amount of paying attention to what God says, no amount of ordering our lives with our own strength is going to give us real rest. But the only time we can actually experience true lasting rest is by being united by faith with those who believe. In other words, to be in Christ, Jesus Christ. He has entered God's rest. He sits, he sits at God's right hand. And we, because we know him, because we have been included in him, can experience true rest only by placing our faith in him. And if we do, that should show itself. It should show itself in the way we think about all of our work, everything we do. So I want to ask just a few focusing questions. Number one, number one, are you able to stir up your mind and heart to find meaning in your labor? Are you able to do that? Your labor, whatever it is, right? Are you able to stir up your mind and heart to find meaning there? In other words, are you making the choice to find meaning? Or are you looking over at the chocolate pancakes, right, and thinking that your work can't be meaningful unless it's like that other work that you see or you've heard of, right? Here's the next one. Are you able to stir up your mind and heart to find meaning in your rest? This one's harder for me than finding meaning in my work. And it's easy for me to find significance in the things that I do. It's hard for me to be chill on vacation. You with me? But are you able to stir up your mind and heart to find meaning? It doesn't mean it has to be easy. It doesn't mean it has to come naturally. But are you able to stir up your mind and heart? Can you remind yourself of this? And sense the Holy Spirit helping you lean into it. And here's the last thing. When you look at your things, your home, your 401k, your savings account, your portfolio, your vehicles, your financial accomplishments... Do you tend to feel proud or do you tend to feel grateful? Which one comes more naturally to you? Here's what I know. The the better and the more deeply we understand the gospel, the better and the more deeply we understand scripture, and the better and the more deeply we understand our own sin and our own propensity to continue to sin, the more and more natural it will be for us to experience gratitude 
every time we consider God's blessings. And the more and more natural it will be for us to interpret every good thing that comes our way as one of those blessings from God and not as some kind of personal achievement. Not everybody has the advantage I have of being kind of a ding-dong. It's easy for me to look at everything that God has done and interpret it as God did it. You know, Some of y'all are pretty sharp. Some of y'all are pretty good at stuff. Some of you guys are hard workers. Some of you guys have achieved a lot. And it might be harder for you to look at all that God has given you and see it as something that God has given you rather than something that you've done for yourself or achieved on your own. But the better you understand the gospel, the more in tune you become with your own sin and your own propensity to continue to sin, the more you'll naturally experience gratitude every time you look at something good in your life. The truth is, the truth is, every good thing we have is from God and Every good thing is only good because of God. You see that? When we, when we fully enjoy something, when we really truly see it for what it is, man, what happens for me is that that experience is the richest and the fullest when I see the goodness and the glory of God in that and I'm not just experiencing the thing itself, but I'm experiencing the goodness and the glory of God in that moment. Because that is the richness of everything that we get to experience in this life. And that's what's going to make the next life, that's what's going to make our life in God's eternal kingdom here on a new earth, built amongst the new heavens, that much richer than our ordinary life because we're going to see clearly the glory of God in every single thing that he's made. It's going to be evident to us. We will have seen him like it is, and that means we're going to be able to see everything he made like it really is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, thank you for Deuteronomy chapter 5. I thank you for inscribing these commandments on stone. I thank you for the gift of work. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to stir up our hearts and our minds to find meaning in our work. God, for those of us whose work is hard, for those of us whose work seems to obscure the meaning and significance that's there, God, would you help us to find it? Would you give us just a little extra help to see how we can bring you glory in what we do. God, for those of us who tend to find meaning only in work, would you help us to find significance in rest? Would you help us to enjoy being still? God, would you help us to unplug, help us to unwind, help us to focus? God, for all of us, would you help us to Lean only on Christ. And would you give us the gift of faith so that we can fully trust him and fully trust in him for our significance. Help us to trust in him for our meaning 
Help us to trust in him for our true rest. God, set our sights on the eternal city so that the, the glow of this world would be dimmed in comparison and our hearts would be set on, just set on the vision of our eternal life with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. For more resources and information on our church, visit gracestory.church.